and verse 13. <clears throat> Paul says here in verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath chosen, I'm sorry, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, we left off here this morning, so we'll just recap, cover this, and shift gears and go on. And first of all here, that you're chosen. You need to notice that you're chosen when you're saved. And he says, brethren, here in verse 13. So first of all, you understand that brethren's a corporate group. He says he's chosen you. That's the corporate church. And as we uh, have taught many, many times before, going through Romans, going through Ephesians, and in the first Thessalonians, election is always corporate. And you cannot be chosen unless you believe the truth. Amen? You cannot be elect unless you're sanctified by the Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. I know you're familiar with these verses, but it's my concern as your pastor that, uh, that this uh, root that's out there, it's out here in this community, uh, doesn't get a hold of you and doesn't mess you up. <clears throat> and it's our job not to be deceived by any means, Paul said. And whether or not that comes in the form of false doctrine or false brethren or perils of men or perils of however that thing works, you and I need to study the scriptures and we need to pay attention to sound doctrine so we keep our doctrine straight. Ephesians 1.13 Bible says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. All right, so the order of salvation, you've, uh, you've got to hear it first. He says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth. All right, so the order of salvation is you hear the gospel, then you believe it. And then you're sealed with the Spirit of promise. At the same time there, you become part of the elect. But you can't become part of the elect until you believe, and you can't believe until after you've heard it, all right? And we just want to make sure that nobody's trying to mess you up there, and Calvinism is very much alive. It used to be that Calvinism was just replete in the South. Sorry to our Southern brother that's with us and has chosen to uproot himself and come to the snowy North. But Calvinism is not just in the South. You say, well, how does that work in the South? Well, a lot of Southern preachers, man, they can preach the paint off a barn. Or at least they call it preaching, amen. I'm not picking on them. But uh, they'll say this, Southern preachers are replete for saying this. Well, if you're saved, you'll live like it. Really? Sometimes you live like the devil and you're saved. It don't mean you're lost. It just means you let the flesh rule. That's Calvinism. Calvinism says a, a lot of dumb things, and we're not going to give it the credibility uh, that it stands on here, but Calvinism is alive and well. And let me say this, you know this, but Calvinism will kill any local Bible-leaving church if entertained for 30 seconds. I'll say it again. Calvinism will kill any local Bible-leaving church if entertained. There's a, and here's the thing. They don't hide under the name Calvinist church. They hide under the name of Baptist church. And they hide under the name of Reformed Baptist Church. Like it, lump it, as one preacher says, take it to the river and dump it. I don't care. If you get that stuff in your church, it'll kill it. There'll be no one winning anyone to Jesus Christ, and you take all your standards and just chuck them out the window. All right, there's a Baptist church in Mycato. That place is pastored by a Calvinist. I don't care if he's a nice guy or not. He's still a Calvinist. There was a Baptist church in Gladwin that produced a Christian school in 75, but in 2003, the place went off the rails, took Baptists off their name, showed their true Calvinistic colors. And if you listen to any of that preaching right now, come on in, brother. 
any of that preaching right now, it's like deader than the fish on Huron Beach that wash up. Why? They're too busy preaching uh, the five soul laws. You say, what's that? Don't worry about it. You got the book. You preach the word. Amen? Amen. Preach some 1689 confession of faith. Oh, your mother's combat boots. You don't need to know some confession of faith. You need to know the Bible. You need to know what a bunch of people wrote down, got together, all the grand poobahs got together. Oh, we think this is what should be here. Why don't you just preach the word? Isn't that what the Bible says? Amen. You say, why are you that way? Because if you get messed up on that stuff, it'll kill you and it'll kill your church. It'll suck the very life breath out of any local assembly. I've seen it happen. It'll suck the life breath out of any local assembly. And we cover this not so we can say, look, we're doing it all right and they're doing it all wrong. We cover where they're wrong and where they're wrong, we go the other way. But we cover it so you don't get messed up on the thing. Now in verse 13, notice it says the beginning. You need to understand the beginning there is not a reference to Genesis 1.1. And that's what a Calvinist will tell you. That's what a Reformed Baptist, that's what a Reformed theology will tell you, that the beginning is a reference to Genesis 1.1. The beginning here is a reference to the moment of your salvation. Do you know when Genesis 1.1 took place? When? When? You don't know. But do you remember the moment you got saved? Sure you do. And Paul's very clear about that throughout the epistles there. Look at verse 14. Let's move on. He says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel. By the way, in the beginning he's correct. <laughs> They're like, oh, my theology, don't worry about it. I was messing with you. He says in verse 14, <laughs> Now look, when you deal with people, you can't deal with the way the preacher deals with preaching. Is that making sense? When you deal with people out on the street and you deal with family members, you have to kind of tone it down a little bit. But if you let this pulpit ever get cold, shame on me. This pulpit ought to be hot. This pulpit ought to bother you. You know, Bob Jones said, if a preacher don't bother me, he's not worth the salt. Every once in a while, a preacher ought to just be like, uh, I'm looking for a decent illustration. You ought to be like rock salt in your britches. You ought to irritate you. You ever work outside all day in the sun? I'm a big fella. You're a big guy. You ever work all day in the sun and you get that rash going on? That ain't no fun, is it? Oh, no. There ain't enough cornstarch in the world to fix that thing some days, amen? But, you know, preachers like that some just chafe the living daylights out of you. He ought to. Why? You need it. I need it. You need preaching. I need preaching. I mean, don't you get told all week long that you're sweet and you're kind and you're wonderful and you're lovely and you're doing all right and you're somebody and you're going to be somebody special? Isn't that the dumbest thing you ever heard? Without Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, you're as good as in hell with the door shut. Old preacher said you ought to be in hell with gasoline britches on. Some of the things you thought, man, this week alone, you know you ought to be in there burning right now. So when I talk about Calvinism and how it kills the church, that, you'd be like, oh, that's easy stuff, preacher. Some stuff you thought this week, you ought to be in there right now. Amen. All right, but from the beginning, chosen to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. I have no patience with Calvinism or Reformed theology whatsoever. Now look at verse 14. Whereunto he called you by our gospel. And Paul's talking right there when you got saved. Then he says this to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, 
Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. All right, now here are the traditions. These traditions are Pauline. They're Pauline in nature. And they're proper traditions that are based upon the Bible. And what you've got to be careful of as a Bible-believing Baptist that you don't base your traditions on, well, that's just the way we always done it. Amen? You can't be of that mindset, well, that's just, the, you know, that's just when we have the family reunion. Well, if it's on a Sunday, talk to the Grand Poobah and the Grand Moomah and get that thing moved. Right? Yeah, you know, yes, when I was in school, I mean, it wasn't the greatest thing in the world, but they, they never had graduations on Sunday. They still respected church just a little bit. Everything in the world's on a Wednesday and a Sunday now. You say you're just ranting. Why not, man? Nobody else is ranting. You imagine if people, uh, whether or not they all believed like you or your stripe that you believed, uh, people in the community... I had half a brain and half decency about them. They start scheduling the, some of these prominent businessmen that go to a church. Say, hey, school board, get your head put in the right place and stop putting that stuff on Sundays. You suppose some business owners stand up, right? Those are traditions. But you base some traditions off the Bible. We go to church on Sunday because the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. And we understand that every man perceives a day one day above another. And he looks at it differently. You're supposed to be fully persuaded in your own mind. Are you persuaded this is where you're supposed to be? Well, praise the Lord. Not everybody is. I'm not running them down either. Here's the thing we preached this morning. I go to church because I get to. I do. You say, oh, no, you're the preacher. Oh, no, you didn't read the verse. I'm supposed to be a pastor. I'm not supposed to lord. I'm not supposed to do it of necessity. I'm not supposed to be the preacher because no one else is going to do it. Because no one else would, they give it back, amen. <laughs> but that ain't the reason. You know why I preach and I'm the preacher? Because God told me to and I get to. Amen. And I believe that's why you come to church as well. He says, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And you can't base your traditions upon, well, that's just how we always done it. You've got to have a standard, amen. And that standard ought to be the Bible. The standard shouldn't be your mama. The standard shouldn't be your daddy. The standard shouldn't be, that's just the way we always done it. A standard shouldn't be, well, that's the day we always do this. It should be the Bible. You should have a biblical standard. And uh, when the standard doesn't line up with the Bible, well, then you throw it out. Amen. That's a biblical tradition. For instance, the Catholic Church, it says you're supposed to call a priest a father. Am I telling the truth or am I telling you lies? That's what they say. That's your tradition. But Matthew 23, 9 says, And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. You say, what about it? The wrong tradition. Throw it out. Go with the Bible, not with the church. That's how you handle that. You don't go in there and kick Mary out of the bathtub. Amen. You don't turn over all the Mary statues. You don't put them on hangman deuces and throw them over the viaducts. Amen. You don't be goofy like that. You don't disrupt Catholic church services. You just go the other way on that thing. All right, Bible says over in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, for there's one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, right? But the Catholic Church says the priest is a mediator. What you going to do about that one? Well, I guess you better ignore it and go the other way. The priest isn't the mediator. The pastor's not the mediator. There's one God and one man, uh, one God, one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. That's who it is. 
Now you've got to be careful when you get into these things about traditions because some people get so scriptural that they become unscriptural. I mean, like there's nothing in the Bible about pews. There's nothing in the Bible about lights. There's nothing in the Bible about toilets, but aren't you glad there's a couple back there? <laughs> you see, you can get into trouble with that stuff. And some people are so scriptural, they're unscriptural. There ain't nothing in the Bible about wedding rings either. But if you're married, you probably ought to wear one. <laughs> or your wife is going to get mad. Now, so if the scriptures are silent on a thing, the best way you can do is you line that thing up with the Bible the best you can and you go with it. And if it doesn't go against the Word of God, then you're probably going to be all right. Did you catch that? If the scriptures are silent about a thing, then you line it up the best way you can and you'll probably be all right. Now, the traditions here that Paul is talking about is uh, not only are they taught by a word, not only are they taught by epistle and the things they told them, but also the things that they wrote. He says this also in chapter 3, verse 6. We'll get to that. I don't think we'll uh, get to that uh, tonight. But just look at Second uh, Thessalonians 3, 6. It says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which you received of us. Now, of course, when the Thessalonians was written, it was written pretty early on. And if you look at the time frame of that thing, uh, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon hadn't been written yet. The book of Revelation hadn't been written yet. So there's a lot of things that Paul said that were later written. And what you do is you go by the traditions that are in the Pauline epistles and you'll be all right. You'll be all right in your Christianity. In other words, what you do is you line everything up according to what Paul said, and uh, you should be in pretty good shape. Amen. That's why you take all them passages that seem obscure in the Gospels and that seem to contradict, and you read them, and when they contradict what Paul says, you correct your theology, you correct your doctrine, you correct your traditions by what Paul says, and you'll be all right. And that's how you do that thing. Paul's our apostle. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. So that consolation there is comfort. Aren't you thankful for comfort? And he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the deity of Christ. He says, God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation. Now, that's something that he gave you the moment you got saved that will last forever, amen? Uh, it, it's not something that lasts until you lose it, but it's something you keep forever. Look at what he says in verse 17. Comfort your hearts and establish, establish you in every good word and work. Now, we've already been over how the Lord establishes you several times, but we'll hit it once more since we're here. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. The Lord is going to establish you through suffering. I hate to be the bearer of bad news time and time again, but if there's one thing you should have learned as we go through the first and second Thessalonians, is the Lord God is going to establish the child of God through suffering, and not just through learning and knowledge alone. That's a good thing. You learn more and more about Jesus. I would know more about Jesus and all. That's good, but you're, you're established through suffering. And that's the, that's the bitter truth. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, the Bible says, But the God of all grace hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that you suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, 
settle you. And But the only way you and I are going to be established as a Christian is by suffering. And that's, of course, going to end chapter 2 there. That thing ends on that note there. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. Now, he begins verse 1 in chapter 3 with the word finally. So you know Paul's a preacher because he's got at least, what, 16, 17 verses to go here. <laughs> and he begins it with finally. Look at verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And here, obviously, Paul wants the Word of God to have free course. And you, when you come into church house, uh, uh, you're witnessing to people, you ought to want the Word to have free course. Amen? That's a great prayer request. And Paul is the boldest Christian that ever walked the face of the earth. But yet you find over in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18, 19, and 20, the boldest Christian in the entire earth at that time is asking people to pray for him. And you ought to ask people to pray for him. You ought to pray for other Christians. And you know what? If Paul needed prayer and Paul's asking other Christians to pray for him and Paul's asking for boldness and for the Word of God to have free course, then you and I ought to pray for one another too. Amen? And Paul says here you ought to pray for other Christians. What the Lord says in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, He says, Men ought always to pray. You know what men ought? You know what men always do? <laughs> they always not pray. <laughs> but Jesus Christ says in Luke 18, 1, Men ought always to pray and not faint. You and I, we ought to pray for one another. Amen. Not just, uh, not just, and you know, when those prayer, prayer requests come through, I would encourage you, I would exhort you, I would challenge and charge you. Stop what you're doing. Take time to pray. Because if you don't, you're human, you'll forget. Amen. Write it down, stick it on a slip of paper, put it in your pocket. Every time you put your hand in your pocket, fill around with a couple pennies that's there. If you leave the gas pump, you at least pray for that. Amen. Now, in verse 1, Paul says, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And that thing about having free course, you know what that is? That's that the word of God may operate freely in our lives as a Christian. That's a good prayer. That the word of God would take over. Amen? You know, you, uh, the dangerous thing as a Christian is you never want to put a governor on the word of God. You never want to put a governor on that thing. And You know, when you're messing around building go-karts and dirt bikes for your kids, you put governors on them. And if your kids are smart, they take them off. <laughs> and you never want to put a governor on the Word of God. Amen? You don't want to hold that thing back. And I've seen it before. Christians get growing, and they grow and grow and grow, and, man, they're just devouring the book, and all of a sudden trouble comes, and they put the brakes on. And that thing stops like on a dime. But you never want to put a governor on the Word of God. Uh, the Christian is the one who always hinders the word. The Lord's not the one hindering that book. It's the Christian. And we're the one that stops it. Why? Well, most of the time, just because we won't yield our members to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to yield it because, like I said, he's not a Calvinist. He won't force it on you. And you want to pray that the Lord, that the word would have free course. And he says that it may have free course and be glorified. And here's the thing. The word is not going to be glorified in any individual unless that an individual allows it to have free course. So Paul says in verse 1, here he says, pray for us, but look at verse 2. He says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. All right? So now that's not just the unsaved, but that's the saved folk too. I mean, think about it. Uh, I know saved people right now are completely unreasonable, don't you? I mean, saved people, I know saved people, they won't give. Saved people won't witness. 
saved people won't walk by faith, but they'll walk by sight. And then the preacher gets up and tries to tell them about it, and they get unreasonable. We all need faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul tells young Timothy, he said, Many shall depart from the faith. That's what he says in these last days. And think about it. You can't depart from it if you ain't never had it. Did you catch that? That's the error Dr. Schofield made. He put out a fantastic reference Bible. You can't depart from the faith if you don't have it. And doing that means you got to do what the Bible says, talking about saved people. And if you're going to do what you're supposed to do, you know you're headed for trouble. And, well, the good part about heading into trouble is when you get in trouble, God can get you out. Amen? You know, we don't like getting into trouble. Uh, we don't like trouble. We don't like difficulties. We don't like temptations. We don't like uh, persecution. But when we get in that thing, God often guides and directs us into those things so he can get us out. And then we thank him for it. And then he puts it back on us again so he can turn around and deliver us again. And then we love him more. Isn't that wild? <laughs> I tell you what, I never have liked a storm, but I can tell you there's a number of times when I'm just starting to come out of that storm, I'm like, man, I just feel like me and the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't do it. Man, I'm just like that. And uh, all I'm thankful that the storm's coming to an end, I kind of say this, thanks for the storm, Lord. Because it showed me how much I needed you. Shows me how much I couldn't do it without you. And you know what, Lord? You know, I was talking to the Lord uh, just last night. I said, man, this last couple storms, man, you rolled me through. And, of course, blaming the Lord like you do. I said, you know what it showed me, Lord? He's like, what? I'm like, man, I'm a mess. <laughs> because when you go through the storm, some people think, well, God's given you storms to just develop you for his usefulness. No, 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 no. That storm's designed to show you who you are. And you know what you are? You're a mess. And you need Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I said, Lord, man, I sure am a mess. He said, yeah, you sure are, but I got you. I delivered you. I brought you out. Amen. I kept your feet on a solid rock. And I never left you. I never forsook you. And I was there the whole time with you, but yeah, you're right, preacher, you're a mess. I said, yeah, man, I sure am. Easy on the next one. He said, yeah, we'll give you another one, all right. But uh, think about it. You get into trouble, God gets you out of trouble so you can glorify Him. I mean, really, I mean, if you could always get yourself out of trouble, why would you need the Lord? So you get into fixes, you get jammed up in your Christianity, and here comes the Lord, He delivers you, amen. You're like, thank you, Lord, I just... Lord, I'm a mess. He's like, I know, amen. Keep thanking me for it. Not only that, but in the verse, you should be praying for other Christians to be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. I'll say it again. In that verse right there, verse 2, you should be praying for other Christians to be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Bob Jones Sr. said this, good men are always reasonable. So you should always be able to sit down and reason with good men. I'll say it again. You should always be able to sit down and reason with good men. And if you can't sit down and reason with a man, he's not a good man. He's a punk. <laughs> you ought to be able to sit down and reason with a good man. And uh, the reality of what we're preaching here at this point is you're going to find out you'll have to be delivered mostly, mostly in your lifetime from Christians rather than you will have to be delivered from the unsaved. Did you catch that? Now, that's the way it is. 
In these last days, things get perilous. Things get more difficult. And the difficulty usually comes from inside the body of Christ. We don't look out and go, them public schools. You know why the public schools are the way they are? Because the Christians kicked the Bible out. It wasn't the lost people. It was the Christians. The Christians stopped standing up. And judgment begins at the house of God first. You want to know why this world is so wicked? Because Christians stopped living for Jesus Christ. The pulpits got cold. So you can sit here and you can blame the lost, but that's what lost people do, ain't it? You want to, you want to get on that bandwagon and criticize everyone that goes to Walmart the, the way that you wouldn't go there dressed? What do you expect them to do if they're lost? It's the Christians that ain't got a brain in their head half the time. Not passing out tracts, not witnessing, not standing up for Jesus Christ. Nobody knows they're a Christian. They're a closet Christian, right? Worked at the job for 18 years. People still don't know they're saved. Well, doing all right. What we're saying is we need to pray for each other. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, but the Lord is faithful. Thank the Lord he is. You see that? But the Lord is faithful, verse 3. I mean, maybe everybody is else is un- maybe everybody else is unfaithful. But the Lord's faithful. I don't know. Maybe your family's unfaithful to you. Maybe the brethren are unfaithful to you. And maybe you're unfaithful. But the Lord sure is faithful, isn't he? <laughs> so, but the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Now, here's three things right here that will make an excellent sermon. And since I said that, I'll have to preach just a little bit of it. I'll show you here, first of all, number one, you know why the Lord's faithful? Uh, he's faithful according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He's faithful to keep you from too much temptation. Aren't you glad for that? He's faithful to keep you from too much temptation. That's 1 Corinthians 10.13. Bible says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who with the temptation make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. The problem with our temptations is we don't look for the way of escape. We don't ask for the way of escape. And then when he shows it to us, we won't grab onto it. But he's faithful. He won't give you too much temptation. He said he'll give you just enough. You'll be able to bear it. And then when he gives you too much, he always gives you a way of escape, that Bible says. So the next time you're tempted this week to do whatever it is that's tripping your trigger and busting your yoke and all the rest of that stuff, at that moment, say, Lord, show me the way out. Show me the way out. I'm going to bust it. I'm going to flop it just like I always do. And the Lord's like, thank you for asking. Here it is. And you say, thank you, Lord. You're faithful. And you grab the way of escape and you get out of it. And that's how you get out of temptation. Well, he's faithful. He gives you the strength that you need, doesn't he? How about Philippians chapter 4, verse 13? Well, my God shall supply. No, that's 19. Uh, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. He's faithful, isn't he? He gives you the strength you need. He gives you the power you need. Uh, you just got to ask for it. He's faithful in Titus chapter 1, 9. He's faithful to give you his word. Titus 1.9, the faithful word. He's faithful to keep you from too much temptation. He's faithful to give you the strength you need. He's faithful to give you his word. And how about this? He's faithful to keep you even if you don't want to be kept. <laughs> Look at 2 Timothy 2.13. This is a blessing. I'm telling you what, we serve a faithful God. You can't sit there on your blessed assurance and tell me that every single day of your Christian life you've wanted to be a Christian. There are some days that you weren't even thinking about being a Christian. You never thought about it from the day you got up to the day you went to bed. Now look at this, verse 12. 
2.12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. Talking about the opportunity to rule and reign with him. Look at 13, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. When you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he says, I'm yours, you're mine. Everywhere you go, I'm going, you're stuck with me from now to eternity. And it doesn't matter. You could wake up one day and say, Lord, I've had it with you. I quit. You know what the Lord will say? Well, I'm going with you. It's like I told my wife when I got mad one time, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to leave you. She says, well, if you leave me, I'm going with you. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but the Lord's faithful. He's faithful to keep you. You see that in verse 13? If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He keeps you whether you want to be kept or not once you're saved. That's a faithful God. Not only that, but number two, the Lord will establish you. He'll establish you. And like we said, you know, in 1 Peter 5.10, He establishes you through what? Suffering. Nobody likes to suffer, but that's how the Lord, that's how the Lord establishes you, through suffering. It's suffering that establishes you. It's suffering that strengthens you. And it's suffering that settles you. Not only that, but you find over in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, you know it uh, establishes the Christian there? Preaching. Preaching. You're established through preaching or suffering, and you're established through preaching. You know how Christians get blown all over the place by every wind of doctrine? They don't get enough preaching. Now I'm preaching to the choir. Y'all sit and endure even until the end. The same shall be grounded, amen. But uh, a lot of Christians don't get the preaching. You need preaching. I need preaching. I got a preacher. And he preaches the stinking hair off me, man, as you can tell. It's getting kind of thin on top. But the thing that will establish you is suffering. The thing that will establish you is preaching. It's that book and preaching. And, of course, uh, speaking of the book, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 38. What establishes you is the Word. Christians are weak. Christians are anemic because they don't get in the book enough. Amen. We could get up every single Sunday and preach about the importance of getting in that book and reading the book and studying the book and loving the book and meditating on the book, and it would never get old because that's exactly what you and I need. You don't need a seminar. You don't need a training ground. You don't need a retreat. Imagine that. I understand why people get away and have a vacation. If you need a vacation, take one. But you and I are soldiers in the Lord's Army. I never find anywhere in the Bible where you go on a retreat. Let's schedule a retreat. What, what does that even mean? Remember when uh, the disciples were with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible said that they didn't even have time enough to eat? They didn't have time to eat. Now, that's busy. I mean, at least when you're working like 16 hours a day, you're swinging into McDonald's or something and getting a Big Mac or a quarter pounder or whatever, 10-piece, whatever the chef's cooking up back there. And, uh, but these people, were, uh, the disciples and Jesus were so busy, they couldn't even eat. And the Bible says that Jesus told the disciples, come apart for a while. Like, because he's going to come apart, right? And so they go out to the plane or however that thing goes, and next thing you know, everyone and their brother, thousands and thousands of people follow them. And the disciples are like, are you kidding me? We not even got to the Holiday Inn, and here they come. Welcome to the ministry. <laughs> right? 
And so when they're supposed to be on holiday or vacation, uh, you know, catching their breath, you know what the Lord does? He performs a miracle and he has them minister to those people. And uh, the reason why people are anemic and weak and not established is because they don't go through suffering. Uh, they don't get enough preaching and they don't get enough of the word. That's the second part. And the last part is here, he says in uh, the verse 3, the Lord will keep you from evil. Keep you from evil. So what's that all about? Well, that means you won't have to worry about going through the tribulation. Amen? That's what he's talking about. You won't have to go through the tribulation period, although as a Christian you're going to have to deal with some tribulation in your life. But you ain't have to go through the tribulation period. You know this, we are not appointed under wrath. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.9. You know, it's my desire as a preacher for you to be so intimately familiar with these references that you almost get sick and tired of hearing them. Not appointed under wrath. Not only that, not only are you not appointed under wrath, the Bible says there in the book of Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7, that it's a time of Jacob's trouble. That's not the church's trouble. The church is not Jacob, and Jacob is not the church. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. That's the time of Jacob's trouble, and that's judgment period of time on the earth. All right? That's Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. I know some old-time preachers use those passages, uh, but what they need to do is they need to use them uh, uh, spiritually instead of doctrinally. All right, but here's the thing you got to remember. The Lord will keep you from evil. you got to keep this in mind. The church is going, and the kingdom's coming. The church is going. You say, how do you know? Well, how about 1 Thessalonians 4.17? And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The church is going, and the kingdom's coming. You ever heard the old-timers say, uh, we'll do that till kingdom come. <laughs> and well, if you're saved, you get raptured out. If you suffer with him, then you come back. Amen. The kingdom is coming. And you pick that up in Isaiah 51.11. Isaiah 51.11. You say, what's that? Oh, the redeemed of the Lord shall return, come a singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. Right? The redeemed of the Lord shall return. That's all the... That's all the saved, born-again, child of God coming back that suffered for him. They come back on white horses, and they rule and reign with Jesus Christ a thousand years. So the church is going. The tribulation comes in. The judgment seat of Christ happens. The marriage supper of the Lamb happens. Those who suffer with him come back, and they set up the kingdom. That's how the thing goes. This says the Lord will keep you from evil. Look at verse 4. 2 Thessalonians 3, 4. We have confidence in the Lord. Now, you want to notice here that you got confidence in who? Not the saints. <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of disappoint ourselves from time to time because we get these lofty expectations of one another because we love people and we esteem them highly in the Lord, even preachers and teachers and Sunday school teachers and all the rest and youth leaders and God help us deacons and all the rest of that thing. And you get this idea that there's some kind of a spiritual guru but your confidence needs to be in the Lord. And that's what Paul says. He says here in verse 4, he says, We have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And Paul will tell you here in the next verse, verse 5, 
the things that he's going to do and he's going to direct your heart. And in order for you to do that, it's found two ways here in verse 4. First of all, it's found by, oh, how does he word that thing? Verse 4. It's found by doing it. He says, you both do. All right, do. As in now. And will do. That's later. <laughs> what is that? Absolute obedience to Jesus Christ. All right. <clears throat> it's found by doing it now and doing it later. Not just to hear, but uh, being a doer also. What is James? Look at James 1.21. I know you're familiar with the passage. But look at James chapter 1, verse 22. James chapter 1, verse 22. Brother James is preaching here, and he goes on and he says, But be a doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. You see that? Remember, we were preaching just a little bit while back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, and he said, Be not deceived by any means. We're talking about things in the last days that would deceive a Christian. I miss this one. And you know what this thing is? You deceive yourself if you're someone, one of them individuals that goes to church and hears the preaching, but you never do anything with it. You see that? You deceive yourself. That's what Brother James says. Be your doers of the word and not hearers only. All right. To whom much is given, much shall be required, the Lord said. And you've got to be a, hear, you've got to be a doer, not just a hearer. And you know, Paul consistently says that through the Pauline epistles. He says this, your walk got to match your talk. Not just listen, but you got to do it too. Second Thessalonians 3, 5. The Bible says in the Lord, direct, that means to aim your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. You ever stop and think that you simply don't have a natural love of God? It's not natural. It's something that you have to be directed to do. You don't wake up and go, oh, God, I love you. Maybe after coffee, the weather channel, the morning news, the paper, who even reads one anymore, breakfast and your to-do list, you might, might be a second or third off option. But it's something that your heart has to be aimed towards doing. It's not natural. And then he says this, and into the patient waiting for Christ. And the two ways to do this, we said in verse 4, is to do and will do. You obey now what the Lord says, and you obey it in the future. And you see, a preacher, he's supposed to direct you in that area. A preacher should be attempting to aim your heart into the love of Christ. But here Paul says that the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, number one, and number two, make you patiently wait on Jesus Christ. And the process, that process the Lord will take you through, is he'll take you through some really tough times, won't he? He'll take you through some difficulties. And you know that just by reading the Old Testament. You read the David's ministry starts in the Valley of Elah with the Goliath, doesn't it? Big old nine-foot Hamite there, and he goes down there only a sling and a stone and goes in there and sinks the rock into his forehead, and the giant falls face down, and then you read the rest of it, and David's got to jump up, grabs his sword, and hacks his head off. Amen, ain't that a blessing? Imagine there being David, a little ruddy boy, freckles and... Oh, Jew boy, he'd grab that giant's head and just stuff hanging out of the neck. If you're a guy, that's cool, amen. <laughs> but what happens is David uh, starts with Goliath, and you know what? At the end of his life, Christians have this idea that it's going to get easier. It doesn't. It gets harder. 
And the hardest giant he faced was Ishbibinab. The last giant he ever faced, that giant had, he had six fingers on each hand and six fingers on each toe. That's stinking polydactylism. <laughs> Did I say it wrong? Well, yeah, he was a freak, right? So I don't know whether they're laughing with me or at me. Now it was at me, amen? Amen. Y'all need to laugh at me. <clears throat> You know what that was? I mean, uh, the gene pool was messed up. And you want to know why? You don't. Because Goliath married his mother. Because in the King James Bible, one place it says the sons, sons of the giant, and the other passage it says the brothers of the giant. That's documented history. That's a messed up, that's not a West Virginia thing, that's a Bible thing. You see what I mean? <laughs> and that's polydactylism. That thing's a, a freak. But, you said, but the spiritual implications is even greater because if you've got six fingers, you got more to get a hold of somebody, don't you? And those, those greater giants are saved for the last part of your life. You see, when you get uh, as old as some of our senior saints, you know what the devil wants to do? He wants to snuff out the light of their testimony. He does. So the hardest fights come the older you get. You think it's hard as a young man, you wait till you get in your 60s and then your 70s and possibly, God forbid, 80. And the devil would lo- love nothing more to take you out at 80 and say, you never really believed that in the first place and go out with a bad testimony. That's why the, the, the worst giants are reserved for the last part of your life. And how you uh, patiently wait for the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord puts you through trouble and you fight giants and you almost get killed in some, and the Lord delivers you, and you get up to Ishbibinab there like David did when he was 70 years old, and old Abishai has to come around and succor that giant and kill him. And you learn to trust the Lord, and you learn to trust the people that God puts around your brothers and sisters in Christ because you're not as tough as you think you are. The older you get, the smarter you get, not the stronger. <laughs> and that's the patient waiting for Christ. He takes you through difficulties. He takes you through problems. He takes you through tribulations. Why? Because he hates you? No, he wants to show you he can deliver you. You see, if God's going to use you, he's got to knock you down a little bit and show you that the bottom won't ever drop out on you. He's got to teach you that uh, you can fall a little bit and he'll always catch you. I guess if there's one main thing in my Christian life, I'd go back 20 years. God forbid me ever do that. That'd be a mess, amen. But go back, you know what I've learned? There's always a little bit more rope. I always thought, there's no more rope. I have to act. I have to make a decision. And a lot of times the Lord is like, no, stop. I got you. Nope. I got to do something about it. And when I did something about it, it wasn't the right thing. He wants you to trust him. He's like, I got it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So when you start living for Jesus Christ, he then puts you through things. Amen. He establishes you through suffering. He starts putting you through trouble. So why? So you learn to love him. A lot of years of my young Christian life, I spent being angry all the time. Why? thought everybody hated me. I thought the Lord hated me. Why, why are you putting me through this, Lord? I thought you loved me. I thought you called me to preach. <laughs> Be on the corner of the street, people flipping you off, cussing you out. I thought you called me to preach, Lord. Because I did. Just shut up and be faithful. Just preach across the street from that bar. 
One day you'll have sober people who will listen to you preach, but not for a while yet. And he keeps putting you into trouble so he can deliver him so that you'll love him more. If he never delivered you, you'd never love him. If he never pulled you out of the miry clay, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think he could deliver you. And the Lord likes doing things for you when? When you need help. You know why? Because that helps you to rely on him instead of anything else. You ever wonder why the Lord's not as interested in giving you a new car when you got one in the garage? But he sure is, in, but he sure is interested in helping you out when you need it. And when you're not expecting it, he turns around and he meets the need. You're like, thank you, Lord. Man, I sure needed that. And the Lord's like, yeah, I know. I, I know a few things. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. <clears throat> Bible says here, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Now I tell you what the walking disorderly is in just a minute, but look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, For yourselves know how you ought to follow us. You see that? You know what Paul's saying? He's saying follow us. He's saying follow my example. And if you haven't heard it already, I'm sure you'll hear people say, Well, you ain't supposed to follow a man. You ever heard that before? I've heard it. I've heard a lot of people run their yap and say that. But can I say this? You're better off following a man that's doing the right thing than following a church or institution that's doing the wrong thing. You ought to yoke up with a man that's doing the right thing. I'll go a step farther. If you're going to be in the center of God's will, he'll always put a man that's doing the right thing in front of you to follow. So every next time you hear some grand poobah or some blue-haired biddy get up there and say, I ain't supposed to follow a man. Okay. Got your number, Grandma. Got your number, Grandpa. Not mine, you know. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying. That's the people who never learned to follow because they wanted you to follow them, but they were never willing to follow the man that's doing it. God's got his man, he's got his message, and he's got his methods. And the question is, are you going to get in the saddle and follow? And Paul says, follow us. He says, I'll lead the way. You're going to follow or what? Amen. And people are funny about that these days. Many people you're going to find out would rather follow an institution even though it's wrong and going the wrong way. And they know it's going the wrong way. And that's an improper way of thinking. You think about the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, there's a lot of good old preachers that started off Southern Baptist and then they saw the light whether Hank Williams wrote that thing or not and they got out of that thing. My only question is, is the Southern Baptist Convention has gone absolutely apostate. They've entertained other Bibles and that. But the question is, are you going to follow God's man? Are you going to follow convention? We came here in 2014 and the GARBC was yoked up and connected with this church and they've now entertained all the new Bibles and they've got, it's a par- It's not even a local church outfit and I got a hold of them and said, we, I said, I want nothing to do with you. God called me to, <laughs> didn't have a whole lot of grace with them. I said, I want nothing to do with your unscriptural outfit, remove your name from us and they said, oh, sonny boy, don't work that way. <laughs> Basically, they had their claws so deep into this place, I had to have almost like an act of Congress to get out of the GARBC, I call it the garbage convention. Amen. They entertain women pastors and wrong Bibles and all that stuff, and they tell your churches what to do. Well, that's not how God made that thing work. It's not an association. You heard the message this morning. 
Lord said in Isaiah 9, 9, 8, associate yourselves together and I'll tear you in pieces, he said. So we did, uh, we got a hold of the, you know, the, the Congress and had the meeting and all that and got the GARBC removed from that thing. But that's an improper way of thinking. Follow an institution that's wrong. You ought to follow a man that's doing the right thing. Didn't say you'd always like his personality, but if you follow the book and he's sound in his doctrine, you ought to get behind a man and push. Every Moses needs an Aaron and a Hur. And whether you're on the right side of the aisle or the left, I don't care as long as you're holding up the arm. I might uh, try to preach from time to time, but I need Aaron and Hurs, man. I need you as much as you need preaching. All right, uh, verse 7, For yourselves know how you ought to follow us. He says it again. <clears throat> for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, look, I worked for what I got. That's what he's saying. And that's the context of the passage here, verse 8. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. And look at verse 9, and we'll uh, put this thing to bed here after this. Not because we have not power. You see that? Paul, as an apostle, had the right to ask for a paycheck. You see that? Paul, as an apostle, had the right to live of the gospel. And we've gone over this several times. But you know what Paul decided? He wasn't going to be a burden to the people. Paul was more interested in those individuals uh, that he was ministering to in Thessalonica, even though he had the right to require a paycheck that, uh, than he was being ministered to. So Paul says in verse 9, Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. You ever stop and think about that? The Apostle Paul was willing to teach the right thing, but yet not even follow his own doctrine so he could be a blessing to those and not be a burden to those he's trying to bring along in the Lord. Look, preaching is not necessarily about you doing what I ask you to do, but your heart being tender enough to be moved to do what God tells you to do. And Paul's like, look, the right thing to do is to take care of the preacher, but if you can't, I'm going to get my tail out here. I'm going to make some tents so I can pay some bills. And he wasn't bitter about it. He's like, it's okay. And uh, we'll kind of stop there in verse 9. He says, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. There he is again saying, you need to follow us. Now look, if you're going to be in fellowship with the Lord, and you're going to be in the will of God, he's always going to put a man in your path that's preaching the right thing, that's doing the right thing, and you'll need to follow him if you want the Lord's blessing on that thing. And you don't follow the man, you follow the message that that man's preaching where it lines up with the book. All right, why don't you stand? <clears throat>